Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. episode 254 of the Sausage Factory. Welcome! In this episode I talk to Harry Robinson and Gavin Price of Platonic Games about ukulele and the impossible lair. But before we delve into that, let's talk about what else is under Kane and Rince's vast umbrella. Kane and Rince, of course, itself, every Monday, this week is covering Donkey Kong 64. That's a game I've not personally played. Not a big fan of the Donkey Kong games. Not because they're bad, it's because I'm bad at them. Then on Wednesdays we have Sound of Play, the podcast that celebrates the tunes that emit from video games while we play them. Hurrah! And on Thursday we have Playwright, two people called Ryan, inventing games based on the ideas sent to them by their listeners. It is quite excellent. And some of the stuff they come up with is just beyond belief but very funny, but also very entertaining. And of course, on Fridays, it's the Sausage Factory, but you knew that, didn't you? Because you're listening to this now. So thanks, again. Now, if you find out more about all those podcasts, archives and that kind of thing, you can. You can go to canarince.com. If you go there, you'll not only find archives of all the shows that I've just listed, but also features, reviews, editorials, and a lively forum. Yes, an active forum in the year 2019. Who'd have thunk it? We also have a Twitch channel. If you go to twitch.tv forward slash Rinse, you'll find us there. Please do follow us. And uh, we have, well, three main shows going out on that channel. There's uh, MK Homebase. He's um, streaming uh, various games, uh, typically NES games or SNES games. I've noticed, um, yeah, SNES games, and he did Castlevania 4 recently, and a few other titles. Um, very entertaining, on Friday evenings at 8pm GMT. Then on Sunday mornings at 10am, we have Garen, Garen Gargett talking and playing, playing Sonic the Hedgehog games. For reasons, why not? Then on Sunday evenings, it is me. Um, streaming random games Um, although I'm not streaming this week because I'm away over the weekend I know, shock horror if you want to chuck us some coin you can yes, um, 
we have a Patreon subscription service where if you give us one US dollar a month, just minimum, no one tier, just the one US dollar a month, you can gain access to not only early episodes of Kane and Rince, also extended editions, because normally they're edited down to two hours, but if you give us some money, then you get the full, full Monty, so to speak, whatever that means. You also have access to the platform specials, which we do every three months, and the uh, latest one is the Dreamcast, which is currently behind the paywall. And there's a new one coming up, which I'll be recording in December. What reveal what it is? That's that's between me and the illustrious leaders of, of Kane and Rince, both of whom, by the way, Jay and Leon, they actually do a monthly podcast as well, which is, which is released exclusively to Patreon subscribers. So yes, if you want to get in on that action, so to speak, you can have that all extra content. And you can by actually just tucking in some money. So that's lovely. But enough of that. Let's hear myself from the past talking to two people from Platonic about an awesome platform game. It is very, very special and very well crafted. Take it away, Chris. Harry and Gavin. Who are Hello. you? Hello. <laughs> Who are Gav- you? Yes. <laughs> Go on then, Gav. You go first. Who are you? You said your name first, but I'll go first. Yeah, it doesn't no. matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I'm alphabetically first. It's true. Um, so I'm Gavin Price, studio director at Platonic and creative director. And I just set up the company because I really wanted to make the kind of games that I really want to play and weren't seem to be made, being made much. There you go. And I'm uh, Harry Robinson, um, lead designer on uh, Ukulele and Impossible Lair. And... Um, yeah, I'm a game designer, so I work with Gav and the design team to work out what cool features we could put in the game and then work with the team to make them happen. Excellent. There you go. First question make, done make, with. Make it sound like anybody could become a game designer. And, no. And they can. No. <laughs> yeah, well, it's very easy. It's, <laughs> if we no, can no, do it. No, it's all <laughs> about, yeah. yeah. We'll come on to that later. But... Um, so you already hinted a little bit about why you created Platonic, but before we do that, the second question, and by the way, just to uh, just so you know, these questions get harder as they get along. <laughs> so just like a video game, really. It's kind of it a mini-boss. Yeah. There's kind of a mini-boss halfway through. Um, I'm a level eight interviewee. <laughs> <laughs> so this is to both of you, of course, and you can answer whatever order you like. But uh, um, but yeah, so how did you make your start making flashy, lighty video games? Ooh. Yeah. For me, for me, it was uh, back in old, that other millennium. Right. Went by. Yeah. Um, back in, uh, just right at the very end, 99, I, I left college to go get a job doing QA at Rare. And it was a great time. It was N64, and about eight games from Rare came out in a row, and I got to play them all. And then at the end of that generation, I remember Greg May was the creative director there saying, Hey, do you want to come and learn to be a game designer? Um, I said yes, and that was it. I uh, yeah, I then made some amazing cups of tea for him and picked his brain all day, every day, and, and yeah, did that so, for another fifteen years or so. So this is the late nineties, was it? Yeah, when that you was started. the start of it all. The late nineties. Yeah, that was a time, wasn't it? Bloody hell! And sixty, but you mm. could count the number of polygons in those games on one hand. He could. For me, the late nineties yeah. is two things. It was the you know the the shift from or the mid to late nineties was the shift from like into three D, and yeah. all all the polygonal models and PlayStation and, and N sixty four and that and that kind of like explosion. 
and what was going on with the PC? You know, because you had Half-Life and mm. Baldur's Gate happening at the same time. <laughs> they yeah, were completely yeah. unrelated. But they're like, I know there was, you were feeding off each other because you weren't living in a bubble. You know what was going on as well. Like, what is going on over there? And it just, it just exploded. It's a wonderful period. An absolutely yeah, awesome yeah. period. But uh, very... And uh, so... But you said you were there for 15 years at Rare. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you, you, you moved on, obviously, to, to, to create Platonic. Is that right? That's right, yeah. I got Indie Itch. Um, ah. I thought, right, you know, um, I'd learned a lot from the Nintendo Rare era and the Microsoft Rare era, and I thought, combine the best of both worlds. And there seemed to be a lot of external forces in the industry around digital distribution, indie development, became you know really pushed to the forefront on um crowdfunding was was strong and viable so i thought hey we've got a chance of doing this um it's now or never i'm getting if i don't i'm, I'm just going to be regretting it one day and here we are um uh, <coughs> yeah, yeah yeah it's uh you're right it's if you describe this scene or this environment to anyone indeed 15 years ago that's that think you're a lunatic it was like, no, mm. this is how it works now. This is mm. you have five different platforms on the PC. What do you mean? Well, you've got Epic, you've got Steam, you've got GOG, you've got, you know, Origin, etc., etc. All these, you know, it's just so many different ways of. Oh, of course, Xbox now. Um, yeah. That, that Game Pass thing, blimey. Here's Outer Worlds. What? There you go. <laughs> oh, great, <Yeah>. thanks. <laughs> this makes no sense. It just makes no sense. But there it is. Um, it's, uh, it's it's an extraordinary thing. Yes, yeah, sorry. Okay. Um, so, um, Harry, then, could you tell us how did you make your start making video games? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I did degree uh, did a degree in film and TV uh, at university in two thousand and five, five to six, something like that. No, two thousand three, two thousand six, something like that. Anyway, and um, I did pretty much everything film related, from writing, directing, editing, you name it. And while I was doing that, I'd always wanted to work in the games industry. But when I was younger, I was assumed that you had to be a programmer to work in the games industry, and so I'd never really looked into it much more than that because I sort of assumed that was the case and and decided that it was. Was. And it was only when I was doing my degree in film that I realised, hang on a minute, I'm directing this film. Surely games need people who direct to them. <laughs> and it's kind of, it seems a bit stupid looking back on it now, but then it's like, oh yeah, there are game designers. You can be a game designer and you don't have to be a programmer. You can just design the game and come up with the ideas and work with the team to make it happen. Much like a director on a film works with the people to uh, to make a film so straight after university i started looking for jobs in the games industry and there was a, a job at rare and i applied for it and it was a producer job and i, I wanted to be a game designer but i thought nah, producer i could probably do that <laughs> and i applied for it and got it and then i started at rare as a producer um on connect sports one so yeah everyone's favorite and um and then yeah i gradually moved over into design and then i was at rare for 10 years and then after that um I moved over to Platonic. But it's, it's kind of interesting joining Rare because I remember when I got there for the first time, the very first day, and the, the head of production said, oh, I've got a really, really secret project for you. And I was like, oh, yeah, 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 super, super secret. You're really, really exciting. Okay, okay, okay. And then he took me into this this one of the barns and um, he handed me this kind of Wii remote but Microsoft version. And it was like, ah, 
okay and you're going to be working on uh, yeah and then it became connect after that but it was initially i was like moved to rare because i was like yeah is it gonna be a viva Pinata? is it gonna be a banjo game and then it was just like connect sports i was initially deflated but actually working on connect sports was, was a really really interesting time and i still remember the first time i stood in front of a connect sensor and just moved and saw the avatar character move with me and it's a little bit of magic there and i was really impressed and and so even though connect sports wasn't necessarily my first choice of game to work on at rare it was still really really enjoyable and i learned an awful lot just working alongside the incredible team of people who were there just going back a bit on the whole film thing it's not the first time we've had a guest say yeah i studied film at university and i find myself making Mm. games instead well, there's a lot of crossover. Like the, yeah. the skill set required to make a film um, and the skill set required to make a game. Like obviously from a game perspective, you're, you're trying to come up with compelling gameplay elements that are fun to play. Whereas with a film, it's more about telling a story. But the, the aspect of A, being creative and solving problems creatively and B, working with a team of people in order to make something that's as good as you can possibly make as a team, you know, that is, is universally applicable to both films and games. So it, it felt like a really natural transition and the thing is because i'd grown up being such a fan of games um it was it was it was a really sort of logical transition for me and, and and it was like working at rare was a dream like i still remember the christmas as a kid when i got donkey Kong country and i in fact in my interview at rare i even remember saying this <laughs> that i still remember the christmas when i got donkey Kong country but i genuinely do i remember that christmas day i remember getting 101 percent on donkey Kong country on christmas day um so it was like it really was a dream to just my first job to be straight in at rare it was it was super awesome yeah, I bet it was. Uh, for me, because I'm really old, um, I go, yeah, Jetpack, that's great. Because mm, <laughs> like, mm. you know, the Rare Replay collection, which was yeah. one of my favourite collections of games, um, yeah, yeah. extraordinary, extraordinary thing. And uh, I was like, yeah, that Jetpack still holds up, and it's only 16K mm. of, of, of mm. coding. So that's that's a thing. But uh, that's... Uh, and also, uh, your, 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 your point about the transition of skills and you've been a producer and being able to read Gantt charts and point at a milestone going, see that? Can't pass it. Mm. Uh, well, interestingly, uh, at the time, a producer job at Rare, it, it kind of evolved gradually as I was in the company. Initially, it was kind of that, uh, like, just looking at Gantt charts and looking at spreadsheets and gradually yeah. the producer evolved into a more creative role. and. Right. It was really strange to see because the head of production, he was constantly looking to sort of shift and change and move with the times. And and so the producer role, although it started out like that, it it gradually became creative. And I think that's why it was easier for me to then transition into a design role because – on a project I'd led as a producer, I'd been heavily involved in the creative aspects of it as well. So it kind of, the design team could see, hang on a minute, this guy actually has got creative abilities and he would make a good designer. And that's why I eventually shifted over. Yeah. And you're, you're, you could, you know, you know what makes an entertaining game because you consume them. So, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, so much. And that's, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, and it's also interesting to talk about interviews. I know, some developers years ago, or not sort of, they still do it. They say, "Have you played Chrono Trigger and have you finished it?" <laughs> and they ask, um, "Yes, well done, good, good answer." <laughs> Which ending so, did you yes, anyway? I do, I do the super ending. Go beat the boss straight away at the start of the game. At the fair. exactly, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, have that. Um, but uh, yeah, okay. This uh, next question then. Well done for the second one. It gets worse. This one. <laughs> 
is a little bit nebulous. Actually, no, it is nebulous. But I love asking it because it, it encourages some really fascinating discussion. What do you believe, as Platonic Games, as a creative endeavour, is its biggest influence? What is the thing that you think that create, that, 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 that influences what what Platonic creates? What is it, the thing? If it's a thing or many things, what do you think it would be? I th- I think it's the DNA makeup, the creative DNA makeup of the people there. There's there's just this way of thinking about the gameplay, about the fun, about the humour, about how bringing it all together that makes this distinctive, flavoursome concoction of a of, of a game to play coming out the back end. That you know, it's we're not purposefully trying really to do things made you know in a past like the game we've just released. It kind of just naturally happens because it's us. It's it's what we do and how we work. So I I, I think we've got this kind of creative DNA, um, this uniqueness to our processes. And anyone who's ever come in and worked with us, they they they've spotted this. Oh, you guys don't do it like this, or you guys do it differently. And we're like, yeah, yeah. And we know we're awkward. We're funny, you know. We're a funny old person stuck in our ways, but it kind of works. So it's the actual, your your influence is you yourselves and how you think and how you... Yeah, I, I, right. it's scary how much stuff comes from one trying to entertain each other on a daily basis gets translated over into a game quite often, how we want to make each other smile and you think, oh, right, there's something there, there's something you saw the reaction in people when, when you discussed something and said something out loud and that's that's interesting. Um, you know, it's, it, you can almost get to a point in games where mechanically... I wouldn't say mechanically everything that's ever been done will be, it has been done, but um, there's there's quite a lot of similarities out there existing and finding USBs is certainly one of the more important things you can do as a company right now. But um, the way the way we work kind of naturally bleeds into that, and you know we we, we can take something that maybe is in an established genre or something, or but we're, we're we're confident in our own abilities that. Just being ourselves, we'll come up with a really good, fun and different spin and take on things. Yeah, that definitely sort of comes out from what you produce. Definitely, there's there's a wry sense of humour. It's very dry, even if it comes desert dry sometimes. It's fine, uh, and that's you know it's one of the things that sort of draw me to to them. But um, Harry, Harry, would you agree with that? Of course you would, but uh, do you want to finish <laughs> on that? Or uh, do, 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 do you give us an example of how this has evolved? Um, I don't know. Like As Gav says, it's, it's quite a unique environment at Playtonic. And one of the things that I found from immediately when I started is just how how playful it is working there and how much, like Gav says, like just to reiterate the point that he made about you just everyone's making each other smile and and you know we all know that we've got a game to make and there's the pressure to deliver that game and make it as good as possible but the thing that i found makes platonic stand out is the sort of amount of fun we have doing it and that's not to say that making games isn't fun and wasn't fun and rare because it was but it you definitely felt more pressure at a company like rare and higher expectations whereas at platonic it's much more like look 
we just want to make a great game, and but we want to be happy doing it. And I think that being happy doing it makes a really big difference to the game that you end up producing and the sort of the mindset that you have coming into work. You're just a, a little bit lighter, a little bit more free to experiment with things and not worry so much if you fail. I, I just think it's it's a really playful environment, as Gav described, and and, and I think that helps yeah. and, and and comes through in the games. We, we, we can take a creative risk and, you know, we can try and do things and we're not too worried if they don't come off because we think we've got plenty of other things going on in the game which will cover any any missteps. And uh, we don't, we're not led by, you know, a big business marketing team coming down to us and saying, hey, you know what, Unibor- unicorns riding motorbikes is in or, you know, <laughs> it's, it's on trend now. You know, get that in your game somehow. We don't have that. It's all just, you know, us. Yeah, you know, what we're thinking day to day, and it yeah. is a relaxed environment. I think that's how you can do your best work. Yeah, and also I love sort of expanding on this. We will talk about it later on in this first half is you don't live in a bubble. There's definitely influences or things that you play as well, or, or see, or watch, or read. Mm-hmm. Go, that's good. That's sort of yeah. You know, we can be inspired by that, and sort of that. That's that's something that someone else has made, and we can sort of. Oh, and as we all know, there's only six stories. Apparently, <laughs> we explain this to someone. No, 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 seriously, there is. Tell me any story. I'll just slot into one of those six eventually. Yeah. <laughs> so, fourth question. Then um, I suspect I know the answer to this, or may I may not actually. I may not. And and Harry and Gavin, you can answer this independently. In fact, I encourage you to do so. Don't lean each other too much. But. Uh, what developer do you most admire in the industry and why? Oh, can you say that one again? Sorry, so, what developer do you most admire in the industry and uh, why? Uh, that's going to be hard to go and pick one. Um, think, I mean, you can have a few. It changes. But... You know what? It, it, this, this is true. It changes over time. Yes. Like, really, really early on, I'd have said, wow, people, you know, on the spectrum and... Yeah. early yeah early nez so like very early on it would have been tim and chris stamper i was like look yeah. at the games they did and on the spectrum and then all of a sudden they pushed the end they pushed the bar technically and creatively forwards and then they had a quiet period and then they come back and do stuff on the nez which you think wow that's not you know i remember nintendo's nez engineers not realizing it could do certain things that they were then pushing it to do and then came around again on the set. So like three times in a row, they pulled the same literal magic trick on limited hardware mm. and pushed it in an area. So you, you think, right, during those pioneering times, you couldn't help but think of them as, you know, gods gods amongst the developers. And then, you know, from a, from a pure gameplay side, who, who cannot appreciate what Shigeru Miyamoto's done for the industry and just brought a way of thinking and breaking down mechanics into the most simple but fun and mishmash of different elements which just combined so well and then as as you know as i just as i get older quite often it'll be an indie dev who will just come up with something i i have what's called and i keep this list on me at all times the list and it's basically any video game which it doesn't matter how well it sold or how well it critiqued you just look at it and think i wish i'd have come up with that Right, and the game that kickstarted that li- me making that list was um, Fez. I just saw, saw yeah. and played Fez, and it was incredible. I was, I was just yeah, like, it really is. It's just oh, you're absolutely right. Seven it's, years it's, old that game now. Seven mm, years. Yeah, yeah. It was you know, it's, it's the game of my adulthood. 
I'd say Fez is. And it's not only just a very well-crafted, unique kind of, oh, that's got a really nice twist and hook and mechanic. The whole structure, the whole pace, every element of the game, I think he delivered with a Nintendo-like quality on top of that hook as well. Like Most developers would just be happy with one or the other, but he, he absolutely nailed both elements. So, no, it, it changes over time. And I do then go on and some, all of a sudden someone else will, you know, I'll be... T- turn me into like a little schoolboy falling over Kylie Minogue like I used to. I'll, I'll just fall in love with someone new all the time. Um, but yeah, that, that you know those, those people I just mentioned. Yeah, huge amount of respect for them. Yeah, uh, Harry, do you got anyone that uh, immediately sort of uh, sort of uh, presents yeah. himself? Yeah, I, th- I think it's it on balance. <laughs> Damn it, he got there first. <laughs> <laughs> on balance, I'd say it's got to be just Nintendo in general, just because of their consistent ability to just to just pull it off time and time again, and just usually like you know Microsoft getting involved in the console wars, and then Nintendo just goes, yeah, do you know what? We're going to do motion control gaming, and no one else thought of this, and we're just going to blow what you think games are out of the water yeah. and, and and then with the switch and, and just the games they make I, I mean i'm such a nintendo fan and just even i can't think of a point in nintendo's entire existence where there's been a lull creatively where there's been a bad run of games that just consistently put out games that are exceptional in so many ways and i can't help but look at that and think how how do they well i I know how they do they've got incredibly talented people who permeate the entire entire company from bottom to top but but it's it's just yeah nintendo for me like just overwhelmingly just inspiring and even like now looking at breath of the wild you know nintendo's take on an open world game is so not what everyone else's take on an open world game is and I don't know. They, they they just for me they just pull it off time and time again. So if I had to pick one developer, it it'd be Nintendo. And just because the amount of joy I feel playing a Nintendo game, they always make me smile. They're always so playful. It's just it's just I'm never unhappy playing a Nintendo game. So yeah, um, I'd say Nintendo for me are like on balance would be would be the uh, the number one. Couple of missteps. Gonna have to say it. Wee music. Come on. <laughs> Let's be clear. Well, you know, I didn't play that, so, you know. <laughs> and, you know, maybe Mario Sunshine, like, people like, you know. Yeah, but it's still, it was still a really good game, though. Like, yes, it wasn't the Mario that people necessarily wanted, but it was no. still a really good game. And, Me, and on yeah, I, I mean, look, they, that, that's when they, they came up with Wind Waker, which was just yeah. such a wonderful game. And yeah. I, I don't know, like, on balance, I, I just, I can't be any more sort of impressed. Like, They've I can't just said no. yeah. so consistently. It, they have like they made like wave race was just incredible where they just said right we're going to make a racing game about the wave system and stuff like that the, yeah i'm with yeah. harry on that actually yeah yeah the, yeah yeah it's a really good response and of course the topically we've got luigi's mansion 3 and people are saying yeah this is a quality experience that sits there from start to finish just gives it back and it's just it's just great. It just revels in the 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 lunacy that is Louis Luigi. Yeah, sorry. yeah. Um, he is a, he's an odd character. So, brilliant answers. Thank you very much for that. Last question. I am required to ask this because we're on a podcast about video games. Therefore, this is what I have to ask. What are you playing right now? 
Oh, I'm I'm playing um, Golf Clash on the iOS every single day. I'm very addicted. Golf Clash. Could I, you expand on this? So it's um it's a very high grossing free to play golf game. Um, but I love free to play games because I see the entire challenge about being ace at them and beating players who are spending lots of money on it without spending a penny myself. <laughs> and it's just this excellent little mini meta game I play for myself. And it's very much like a one-on-one golf golf game. You just quickly get match made with someone. You play shot, they play a shot, who gets down in these shots, you know, traditional golf wins, etc. It's distilled, it's broken down, it's simplified, it's very accessible. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I, I, I enjoy golf. Whenever a golf game gets on my radar i play it a lot like i still play to this day mario golf on the gamecube i'll play golf story every now and again i'll go back in um what the golf's just come out which is hilarious yeah Apple um, golf there's just something Jeez. about golf games even though i'm rubbish at the sport yeah tried it once and never really enjoyed yeah. it the barrier you know the skill barrier for golf was a bit too high for me and the time consuming is definitely too high now. I'm a family man, but um, golf games themselves—they just lend their mechanics just lend themselves so well to uh, to video games. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I'm playing at the minute. Okay, um, Aaron, Aaron, mine's a little yeah. more conventional, I'm afraid. That's right. <laughs> I'm Call playing, of Duty? Uh, no. no, no, not that. But I'm, <laughs> I'm playing Luigi's Mansion on my Switch. I'm playing Death Stranding on PlayStation, and right. then I've not had the time to get into it yet. But I have bought the second game by the guy who did her story. I can't remember what it's called. Telling Telling Lies is that it? Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I bought it, and I'm looking forward to playing it, but. I'm not very good at PC gaming because my PC, well, it's actually a Mac for one, but it's, it's up in my office out of the way. So I, I struggle to get in the groove when it comes to playing PC games. So it's mostly consoles. So at the moment, yeah, Luigi's Mansion and Death Stranding. Yeah. I missed that Wargroove. I remember I actually started playing that this week as well, Wargroove, to get my Advanced War style fix. Yeah. 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 I've been really enjoying that as well. I like the fact you can't hurt the dogs. They just get tired and run away. It's great. <laughs> 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 you, can't, you can't do anything bad against dogs in video no, games there's not enough playable dog characters Jet Force Gemini honestly one of the best games ever made dog character yeah we, we'll have to do something we'll sort it out we'll play Tonic we'll get onto it sometime. yeah look, 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 <laughs> at, look at Light Wars and stuff there's a, it's a yeah. dog in that it's just you know can't go wrong um, but uh, yeah you're right and also there's it's quite I, I played um, Hades recently uh, which is done by um uh, super giant games and uh there's a question like can you pet the dog and it's cerberus <laughs> and they went yeah you can pet you can pet cerberus really it's three-headed demon dog okay fine okay I'm uh, right it's that. a requirement in a game like every game has to pet the dog these yeah, days yeah, yeah, so that engagement director is already saying you know in that game in that game in that game yeah can we make can we make a dog which is pettable in there it'll just yeah. help me it'll help me on social media <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's now designing the game. <laughs> yeah, can you? Have you got a dog in it? No, why not? Just, just fine. Just put it in, and they put a the dog in. Okay, we've got a dog. They, can you pet it? Oh, for God's sake! <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think it's a wonderful thing, and uh, yeah, it's great when they said, you know, they asked. I think it's like there's a Twitter account. Can you pet the dog? Isn't there? And uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he said, yeah, you can pet the dog. We can pet Cerberus. <laughs> <laughs> How's that? How's that petting for a dog? That, that Twitter account has cost millions of pounds in game dev. 
oh, <laughs> it has the industry. Yeah. Yeah. like rush new assets and animations into <laughs> games, so they can they can quickly try and jump on a bandwagon that'll probably be long gone and dead by the time the game comes out anyway. But, but yeah, this, yeah, just like that PR people bursting in, going, "Have we got a dog in the game?" No. Oh God! <laughs> it's an abstract. It's, it's threes. We can't put a dog in. It? <laughs> right. So let's move on to the second half of the show because the first half is done. Well done. And we yeah. can move on to delve deep into you, ukulele, and the impossible there. question then is the zeroth question we always ask our guests not a specific one but ask them what is ukulele and the impossible lair oh uh you f- for me you, ukulele and the impossible lair is the long 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 overdue ans- answer to what should the follow-up to super mario world have been um i, I remember super mario world blew me away and it was 2D levels and you could see where they were positioned in this themed world and finishing a level by a secret exit took, you know, a different path around the world and then switch palaces made things change back in levels. And I just thought, wow, this is amazing. In future, you know, the next 2D platformer that ever happens, it's, it's going to have a world with even more, with even more gameplay embedded within it that'll affect the 2D platform levels and vice versa. And no one did. They just went back to map screens where a path got built or there was just this linear menu select for, for levels. And I just thought, oh, my goodness. I hope one day I grow up to be a, uh, <laughs> a, a, a game developer and be a handsome man. And I, and I did one of them. So Right. Yeah, um, well done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just so I could basically, I, this is right in the wrong of, of my childhood, um, hoping for this, this game that would have done that. So you can lady making a 2d platform which has this you know fun overworld to explore and it almost feels like you've got two games in one but the way they combine and affect each other makes sense and is really fun and interesting and inventive and keeps the player on the toes that for me is is what you know ukulele in the possible there is all about that did take me by surprise actually the overworld <laughs> and and how like wait i'm meant to interact with this no offence to your good selves, but this is like, just get me to the next level. Why am I interacting with this? That was my immediate reaction because you've been so trained 
to yeah. not interact with the level select. It's just a menu. It's just a character yeah. going across the screen going, are you into this bit now? Okay, that's describing my progress through the experience. Instead of, oh, no, <laughs> oh, no, you've got to think again. What? Oh, no, you've got to interact with this as well. Really? But then, then that, well, we can come on to that in one of the questions, but I can see why you did it. I mean, I know you've yeah, well, it, but... well, it's it's actually the other way around. Like the overworld, and this again alludes back to how we work. The over the overworld was was there early on, and we said, yeah, we want to do that for these reasons. Right. Everything else in the game, which is probably what people imagine would have been the first thing written down on a design doc, was just an answer to the problems or solutions or opportunities the overworld was presenting. We didn't say, hey, wouldn't it be great if you had a game where the last level was accessible straight away from the start and it's just mega difficult so playing more of the game makes it easier. But it was never you know, a focus of the initial design. It just came later as a response to this, this overworld structure as did the trouser paywalls, the puzzles, the, the tonics. You know, um, it, it turned a lot of the traditional thinking for a 2D platform on its head, and we were just having to respond to it all the time. It made our lives, you know, really difficult, but um, we relished the challenge. Um, You know, there's some projects I remember you work on, you think, okay, I've done that project. I don't feel like I've learnt or tested myself so much. Maybe we took it a bit easy. But on this game, I think we really grew as as developers because, because we'd given ourselves you know, so much new ground to cover in trying to do what we did. Um, and, and I think we're all the better for it moving forwards. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So the first question then. Um, when playing Ukulele and Possible Lair, I find myself being drawn back to platformers from the 80s and 90s uh, that sprang into being full and release of certain 8-bit games like Manic Miner and stuff like that. Um, do you think this is a natural influence or is it something you deliberately decided to 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 uh, evoke into the game. I don't know what you think, Harry. I think it happens kind of naturally. You know, yeah. there's been so many, so many games with a jump button in. For example, regardless of the genre, there's always been this like natural crossover and a comfortable way of feeling as a developer and as a gamer when you have a game with a jump button. Um, so I think it just happens kind of naturally. I mean, I, my my dad's told me about Manic Miner, um, you know, and obviously as a young whippersnapper, I never pl- played it myself. Um, but I remember it's... Moon Patrol. Was, right. I remember Moon Patrol for me was the first game ever with a, with a jump in it. <laughs> and, and you were playing as this, you know, funny little moon buggy, not a, not a character or a person really. Um <sighs> So, so yeah, I think I think it happens quite quite naturally. Yeah, I mean, I guess we all grew up through that era. So like, I my very first game was Super Mario Brothers One, and then I grew up with Snares, and then a Snares, and then N64, and so I grew up as a child with that caliber of 2D platformer. So I guess to some degree, it, it, it would make sense that aspects of those games would would bleed into the game. But I think it's more of an unconscious thing. I don't think it's something that we're there like. Well, there's a few occasions where we're like, oh, you know, like Gav was saying, isn't the, isn't the map screen in Mario World something that could be so much more than it is? Um, but other, other than that, I think it's kind of more of an organic thing, perhaps mm. from our childhoods. 
Yeah, I think it probably unconsciously is. That's what I was trying to tease out. It probably is. Because the design of the layouts and levels, I just regressed a lot going, oh, yeah, you've got dissolving platforms in a way that you land on a platform and eventually mm-hmm. it will collapse. The Manic Miner had dissolving platforms. There was lots and lots of stuff happening which seemed to be completely superfluous but turns out isn't. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, lots of crazy things flying around going, why is that there? Why is... Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you have to um, get a good mix in there. Hmm. Otherwise, you don't want to be totally derivative. And um, if there is something where you feel like, well, it, it has been seen before, how can we make it our own? Or how, how can we make it fit this world and feel embedded? And I think that's something like the R team helped us really achieve was to get a lot of kind of abstracted gameplay um, from the 2D genre, but it feels like it actually belongs and is a solid piece and, and part and furniture of the world itself you, you're traveling through. So you don't you don't really hit this, oh, I'm just reminded all the time I'm playing a really abstracted video game moment as, as you're playing along. Like, an, and I think it's the better for it, like Mario does in his 2D games. You know, things float in midair, there's no connection. You know, the world has its own design language. Whereas we were able to ground that a lot more in a, in a, in a tiny bit more reality. For saying we've got a game with a comedian <laughs> and a bat running across the screen. True. Um, but within the world design, uh, definitely. Okay. So, Nicolay and Possible Air does encourage repeat play of levels. Definitely feel that. And, uh, and uh, there's, a, there's a change with environmental hazards or change of risk of failing. I won't go into details, but basically the same geometry almost of the level, but the actual thing, the experience changes because it's a it's something that is triggered by the player. It's a voluntary thing. You don't have to do it. But if they want to progress in some other areas or get those extra points and stars and one collection and things, then it's encouraged to actually you know change the level by... By doing something to it, by popping something into it. How have you found designing the levels for these different playstyles? Tell you what, that that mechanic <laughs> really, really gave us headaches. Really gave us headaches. Um, trying to create a level which hits a quality bar and is just going to be treated as a one-off and linear experience with some, you know little deviations and hidden secrets along the way is already difficult to do that again, knowing you're going to revisit and reuse and share areas across some of the levels, but in a totally twisted, weird new way, it makes, it doesn't just double the complexity. Honestly, it really makes it 10 times more so because you're trying to create a good spread of different experiences and tones without deviating from the, the core features or focus of a level as you're playing through it and then you've got to think how that plays in another direction or route or with a different feature or prop element applied to it it was it was a it was a nightmare to be honest but it's it's, really it's a really difficult it. yeah. really difficult line to tread isn't it because yeah with with the with the alternate stakes of a level if 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 you don't change it enough, then you just feel like the player is going to feel ripped off because they're just yeah. playing the same level again, but with a different color palette or whatever. But if you change it too much and it's unrecognizable from being 
the same sort of setting as the original version of that level, but but transformed. Yeah. If you change it too much, then it's like, well, why didn't we just make 40 levels instead of 20? So it was trying to hit that sweet spot where it was recognizably, it sort of felt recognizably like the original version of the level, but when you played it, it felt experientially different. And as Gav said, also experientially good. It, it's so, so difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think like we, you know, we knew every, at the end of every level, you've got to, you've got to have achieved something in the game. You've got to have made progress because in any other 2D platforming game, reaching the end of the level, that's fine. That just builds the path forwards and you make progress across the map screen. For us, we had to, you know, there needed to be a really good, strong, tangible reason. Finishing the level, all right, you're going to rescue an extra B to take on the impossible there and make your life a bit easier over there. And we'd never wanted to make each level feel like, and if you don't collect all the secrets on there, you know, you feel like it's a wasted trip. We didn't. And um, one of the things that really helped back up the design and, you know, help um, embrace the fact we wanted the, the levels to be replayable so people could go in and either get better, faster, find the extra hidden secrets and et cetera, was um, one of the things Harry um, designed, the tonic system where you can then go back and real add on lots of new fun customization to the to the moveset, the difficulty, the visual design of a level, um, the aesthetics. So whilst you do, you know, want to go back and for the completionist, get absolutely everything, you can make it feel a whole new experience again in a, in a new extra dimension than beyond what the state changes were doing on top of that. So combined both systems, I think it was a, it's a real fun package to, and, and replayable was one of the core, core goals of the um, game was to make something that's more replayable in the genre than perhaps anything else. And yeah, I don't know how much you've experimented with the tonic system yourself, but what Harry did, he put so much more work than we ever envisioned it would be in the, you know, when we first started discussing how tonics were going to play a role in the game. But to, to say, right, we've got a system where you can make any level the you know the silhouette level or a game boy looking level and change the resolution and change lots of other stuff as well just for fun whilst you're going back doing doing you know replays uh, or brand new you know start from a game save that's why the tonics um, overlap on game saves if you unlock them once you've unlocked them on all saves um yeah everything just combines really well to to reinforce replayability i think Mm. absolutely and the, the, the thing about the tonics as well and, and the state changes the, the two systems they both enable the 2d levels and the overworld to complement one another because you'll um solve a puzzle in the overworld and that will unlock the second version of a level that you can then go in and play and then when you're playing that level you'll acquire quills which you can then take out into the world and then as you explore the overworld you'll find tonics that you then buy with quills and the tonics you can then use in the level so when we were designing the game it was it was a constant we were constantly mindful of the fact that these two experiences the overworld and the 2d levels had to really marry together so the state changes the tonics it, it all goes constantly back and forth for the player so that so that hopefully it feels like a single cohesive experience that they're playing rather than two totally disparate ones and and mm-hmm. yeah i just can't congratulate you enough on this one aspect and and Gavin, you sort of latched onto it there as well. And uh, replayability. Replayability for most people is, well, you finish the game and you go back and do it again. But with 
you clearly impossible lair. You do this while you're playing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. I mean, normally you have to do that new game plus thing that happened 15 years ago or something, whenever it started kicking off. That's something you finished, you did afterwards. In fact, there were games, I think, you know, some games you had to play at a normal difficulty in order to unlock the new game plus mode yeah, and all that yeah. sort of shenanigans. Mm-hmm. Whereas you've done it whilst you did play the game. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, blooming. It's, something... it's just, just amazing. Amazing. It gives us so much to do beyond the game as well. Like, we, you know, moving forwards, we're going to move into a phase, I think, where you'll see us engaging with. Um, the fans who bought the game and setting challenges and saying, you know, have you tried doing this level with this combination of tonics on now or doing this? And, you know, we're, we're, we're always thinking how, the commu- you know, as, as a feature, how it can keep driving engagement of the game um, within the community because, you know, replayability is so, so key to that. And in a single player game, it's really hard to get, a high level of replayability in a multiplayer game where every game's different, mm. it's kind of a natural fit. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really thankful for how he come up with the tonic system he did and how, how it integrated not only with the overall, but really did make you want to go back and try every level. Do you want to turn the entire game into an old nostalgic Game Boy um, experience? Well, you can do. Um, yeah. Do you want to make yeah. it all look like Limbo or do you just want to have classic... An N64 style model, you can lately rolling along. A, a, you know, you've put on a ridiculous speed tonic as well, and yeah. put on some other crazy filter. There's just <laughs> we, we did that really stupid marketing internally with that marketing bit of wow, there's over 5.4 million combinations. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, but. Well, we're not going to say that out loud because I, I, I cringe every time I see that as a, you know, the yeah, marketers who it... latch onto a fact of the game like that. <laughs> and I think well, it's kind of just nice that that's possible. And yeah. we'll, you know, we'll keep that actual stat to ourselves. But um, yeah, if people do experiment there, I'm sure they'll have, they'll, you could lose tons of tons and tons of hours just messing around with that. Yeah, it's uh, kind of like those old Atari games where they had 16 games and modes on the front although you should be in six figures rather than just two yeah um so next question then um there is a, a sense that the design of the uh ukulele impossible layer is very much about allowing the player to experience it as they see fit what have you done to prevent overwhelming the player with choice yeah i, th- I think we, so rather than focus on don't overwhelm the player with what we've got, I think just because everything is focused on a shared goal of, you know, this the core loop of the game is what you do in a 2D world helps do stuff in the overworld and then yeah. what that you do in the overworld then just feeds straight back into the 2D world. Yeah. It's a simple core loop and you can get away with, you know, having lots of little intricacies in either side of that experience or around that loop because everything just keeps folding back on itself and and taking you you know it's it's a i think it's just quite a simple core loop but there's lots of varieties and ver- versions of it so that's why i don't think it feels overwhelming in terms of oh there's lots of different individual loops going on within the game like in other genres and you have to be constantly doing that and then something else and something else 
essentially you're just doing the same thing over and over again, but we're just making you do it in lots of different varied self-contained ways. And I think that helps, um, you know, in a, in a Nintendo style way, helps make the game accessible to a broad skill level. Um, people can come and take it and engage with the stuff that want, makes the game easier if they need to, or they can subvert the game's mechanics, tonic system or whatever, and, and have it their way. Um, so I, I think that's, that's yeah, <laughs> I'm just blabbering now. But, um, <laughs> but it, it's, it's, it's all about that call, that relationship again, the overall yeah. 2D world. Everything really is just driving that simple, same one one core loop of the game. Give them the goal, give the player the goal, and then they won't be yeah. overwhelmed. And the good thing yeah. is the overworld is sort of compartmentalised into chunks. So I think as the player's progressing through, as with a lot of games, you know, we were careful to not give them access to too much of the environment initially, and it is gradually unveiled to them. So I think as, that alongside it just, just helps just simplify the number of things that they've got to think about. They'll unlock a paywall. They'll get into the next area of the overworld. And it's like, okay, there's three new levels available to me here. Which one looks interesting? Or maybe I want to have a little pot around the overworld first, but it's kind of, if you think of the overworld in chunks as you're playing through it, it helps you compartmentalize it as a game as well. Yeah. yeah. That's a really good point because believe it or not, the game started off completely open, no mm. paywalls going in any direction no camera scroll across areas, no sub-areas to a map screen. You, it was very much um, go anywhere. And over the course of development, we made the game a tiny bit more linear by introducing, actually, no, you're going to have to go through paywalls and go through certain areas in a sequence. There's, there's a degree of freedom within each area, but essentially you will be um, gated off. And it gave us a great joke and stab at paywalls. Yeah, that that was brilliant. When I saw it, I thought, yeah, it's always going to be like Trouser, who's known to be this horrible, you know, most corrupt and dislikable of businessmen. Yeah, doing this, it's 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 going to be a metaphor that will continue. I've got high hope. (laughs) (laughs) I'm surprised you didn't see any loot boxes. Oh, believe me, loot boxes were so close in the game but you've got to you've got to keep room for doing stuff in future somewhere else so. you do you do it's a very topical yeah. thing as as uh, activision knows only too well now um sorry mechanic of uh, so last question i know all good things but uh, we must bring this thing to a close eventually the mechanic and this is actually about the the actual interaction of the game the actual platforming everyone so we've been talking sort of dancing around this but ultimately this is a core core aspect of of uh, ukulele and the possible lair the mechanic of making sure Laylee is retrieved after yuka takes a hit is an interesting mechanic that makes ukulele and the possible lair somewhat forgiving to the player for errors made was this to give a leash to the player for them to explore without exposing themselves to too much risk in doing so um yeah i i think for me this is something like every game if they don't get it right, suffers from it, and it's that punishment to the player, death, yeah, yeah. and the death loop. Essentially, I'm, I'm very much a time poor person these days, and I haven't got time to die and replay an hour's worth of content or whatever. And it's very difficult to get right. How do you make the player care about not dying? But how do you, when they do die and restart, how do you? you don't want to beat them over the head with a stick about it. So it's kind of nice that Laylee adds these extra layers of 
you know, additional moves and special moves and fit this features on the level that simply with that lately, they're just not going to be possible to engage with. So you feel like there's a loss as has as occurred, but you can continue to progress. And again, some of the tonics available in the game, for example, back that up and reiterate that, okay, you can equip the tonics that bank stuff as soon as you get them. You don't have to hit a checkpoint with them. So you can really tailor that kind of difficulty. or It's not even difficulty, I guess. It's almost like the punishment aspect of video games to if you're a time-poor person, the game allows you to do stuff and sort yourself out and you can play your way. And if you're the kind of person who wants that ridiculous challenge, you know, you can put on tonics that strip away the checkpoints and make the game more difficult, but you get a multiplier, positive multiplier on your quills, for example, so you also have that extra reward. Um, and so, yeah, the lately flyaway mechanic, it was, again, it was just something we'd never had on a design dot really early on and said, oh, we must do this. It was you know we're constantly pushing ourselves and asking how how are we going to solve these problems that happen in every genre what's right for this game um and yeah where we landed up with it I'm, i thought it, i thought it worked quite well it's a good balance i think of, uh, of difficulty but also progression Another thing that the uh, the losing the Laylee mechanic was added to address is that one thing that we were very aware of um, within the 2D levels is we wanted to add what we called frantic moments to the levels. Um, and one such example are the ghost quills. Um, and there's five different colors, and each one represents a different risk-reward mechanic that encourages the player to take a risk in order to get a load of quills. And we put them throughout the level to encourage players to sort of engage with these frantic moments that takes them beyond their comfort zone because you can play through a level and just comfortably get through it but ghost quills will push you to take risks and losing Laylee was a second example of a frantic moment that can occur but the difference with losing Laylee is that can occur anywhere whereas with the ghost quills we specifically place them within the level to give you a very specific frantic moment should you choose to pick one up losing Laylee is a bit more random and under the player's control and, it, and it's actually really interesting because when you do lose Laylee depending on where you lose her you have a very very different experience and as a player you, you make a really quick risk assessment almost of is it worth it and if you're in a part of the level that's pretty safe and easy you know yeah of course you're going to jump around and catch her but there's definitely sections of, of levels where if you lose a at a point where you're surrounded by death drops and there's enemies either side of you and spikes above you, you may think, do you know what, Laylee? <laughs> I'll leave you to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That does, um, but, uh, yeah. That's but it was, me. but you yeah, knew that that was a good feature because it addressed both of the sort of desires that we had to put things in the game. You know, we wanted to make the game more forgiving and we wanted to add a mechanic that would help players. Um, but then we also wanted to add frantic moments to the levels because we knew we wanted a way of breaking them up and, and losing Laylee was a mechanic that accomplished both so it was a, a really good feature because it could achieve those two things with uh, kill two birds with one bat yeah mm. we've seen it I've, I've seen it like i get so much amusement from watching people doing their impossible lair runs and they've run out of bees and they're now down to the point where they're losing Laylee and they're desperate to go get her back and <laughs> on the, the very final section of the game you know the kind of 
escape section where you, you can feel like the end's right in your reach and someone loses Lady during that session. You can you can see them physically moving backwards and forwards with Yuko on the spot going, should I, should no, no, no. Just, yeah, yeah. It's, it's fantastic. It's so funny to watch. And the fact that you lose a bunch of abilities as well, it, it introduces a really interesting dynamic because, like Gav says, you've got that, you do have that fear of loss, but it's not that you're going to die. It's that you're going to lose these abilities that you've become reliant on as a player. Because one of the moves that Lely enables a player to do is a, an in-air twirl jump that just gives you a bit of extra air time. And there's yep. a few other things she brings yep. to the table, but that one, I think, particularly players become heavily reliant upon. And they know that when they lose Lely, this is not available to them. So not only are they in a situation where if they take one more hit, they are going to die and go back to a checkpoint, but they've not got some moves that they've become reliant upon. And so it really shifts the, the, um, the way players experience the level from that point on, you know, you definitely more sweaty palms. And we were really aware of this fact when we were developing it and we were kind of, I remember when we were doing it, we were deciding what mechanics does Laylee bring to the team such that when the player loses her, they lose something valuable, but not so much so that they feel completely gimped and the game is unplayable. And, and we had to tread that line. And I think it's about right, to be honest, because you lose her, you feel the loss, but you can carry on. But you do carry on with a very different mindset. And you definitely find edging through the level more whereas when you've got Lely particularly with the boosted roll you really find yourself blasting through the levels and yeah jump land roll jump twirl land and you blast through the level <laughs> when you've lost Lely you, you you don't play that no. at all like it's it's which is hurricane <laughs> exactly yeah. so I think yeah. the whole losing Lely mechanic it, it for me it works on so many levels and and really it really introduces a, a great dynamic to the game yeah it's like Sonic with no rings like oh no mm. Oh no! Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to run around anymore. Not until I get another one. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> right. Well, Ukulele and the Impossible Lair by Platonic Games is out now. Uh, it can be found on Xbox One, uh, PlayStation Four, uh, Nintendo Switch, and Windows PC. Is that all correct? Right. Yep. Steam. Yep. I, I I made an error once. I I said the game was an Xbox One. And said, we haven't announced that yet. <laughs> <laughs> so it was very awkward very awkward um, but also I have to ask where did you get the name from I mean it's probably obvious but I love asking this question we've got some very interesting name of developers but Platonic is it just a, a mashup of two terms or is it, does it have other meanings oh the company name not the game yeah. name yeah it was just like we love playing games and we love making games and so Platonic and Platonic, they were close to each other for a bit of wordplay. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's kind of nice, and we, we can kind of see that, yeah, Platonic, it's it's nice that play has brought a lot of people together. Yeah. And it's a tonic. I, I genuinely thought you were going to say, and, you know, we like playing games and we like drinking tonics. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that as well. Um, there's that yeah, as well. But, but from yeah. that, you know, every game we make is going to have the to- a tonic system in it where there are play modifying tonics yeah. um as well so it's already paid for itself that name yeah it has because there's it? thousands to trademark i tell you oh. trademarking these days blimey yeah but yeah no one try and steal it <laughs> <laughs> well gavin and harry it's been fantastic having you on um i do um wish you the very best of luck in your future endeavors and you're more than welcome to come back and chat about those because we've had a lot of return guests i'm happy to say the show's been going for six years now, so you can imagine 
people coming on earlier on, they come back and say, I made this new thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That'd so, be lovely. Uh, and so, obviously, from our perspective as well, it's nice that we get given a platform to come and um, chat about the stuff we, we get up to. It's, yeah, uh, yeah. It's a very, like said, very much a mutual beneficial relationship. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.